King Westgate. How's everybody doing? You excited to be here? Yes, let's try that again. Good morning, Westgate. Are you excited to be here? <laughs> well, last week, Rob talked a lot about hope and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to read, we're going to do a new song this morning, but I just want to read um, here Romans 5, starting in verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The world's definition of hope is a lot different than our definition of hope, right? Because when the world talks about hope, we often talk about it like as an act of, like a kind of a last resort, like a, and I hope I can do this. But when we talk, when scripture talks about hope, we're talking about this confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? He is who he said he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Let's stand and worship together. Song's really simple, it's easy to pick up. Breaking through the silence with glory in the highest, the hope of all creation. Resting in his mother's arms The song on the horizon Ringing through the heavens The long-awaited Savior Come to set the captives free Come to set the captives free Come set us free. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. Emmanuel, the light of the world, who broke through the darkness.
Hey, good morning, church family. You may be seated. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Rob Zimmerman. I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate, and I'm just thankful you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, we have got a great time of worship that is planned, and if you are a guest here today, uh, can I just encourage you to take a moment and fill out the connection card that you'll see in the pew in front of you. Uh, as you fill out that card, uh, you can take it at the close of our service out to our guest center in the main uh, lobby, and uh, we have some hosts uh, that would love to give you a small little Christmas gift just to say thank you for being here as you exchange that card, but also they would love to answer any questions you might have about the church and how you can get connected here at Westgate. So please be sure to stop by. Uh, we're just thankful that you are here and worshiping with us today. Uh, as well, uh, we want to make sure as we're moving into and through this Christmas season uh, that you have all the information you need about our Christmas services. Hopefully, as you walk in, you're able to grab your sermon notes on the back side. You'll see our Christmas Eve service information also up here on the screen. We have two uh, what we would call special Christmas Eve services that are going to be happening. The first one is on December 23rd at 7 p.m. Uh, for those of you who have got family plans that are taking place on actual Christmas Eve, we'd love for you to come to our Christmas Eve Eve service at 7 p.m. Uh, or you can join us on the 24th at 4 p.m. We'll be having a service then as well. And uh, I'm excited for these services we put together just a really creative time of worship uh, for you. And so we hope that you will join us. But I also want to remind you as well that we will be having, because Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, we will still have our morning services that day. Each service will be about an hour in length, and yes, those services will be different from our special Christmas Eve services. And so we would encourage you to come and join us uh, this Christmas season, and especially be thinking about who it is uh, that God has put in your circles that you could be inviting uh, to come with you uh, this Christmas season. Please uh, stop by today at the, at the uh, close of our service out in the cafe. We've got a Christmas Eve table that is set up with a bunch of invites. You can grab a handful of those and go and invite people to join you. So we'd encourage you to stop by. With that being said, we want to just continue in our worship this morning. So I want to invite you, if you will, to stand and take a moment to uh, move around and find somebody you haven't said hello to yet this morning and welcome them to our service. Light or all 
Son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. 
Today we relight the candle of expectation and hope, a reminder that Jesus alone is the hope and salvation. We also light the second candle, the candle of preparation and peace. It stands as a reminder to us that the peace that Jesus brings between us and God and calls for us to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we gather together today to give you glory for all you have accomplished for us by sending your son Jesus into the world. We know that in the greatness of your love, you have promised to forgive us of our sin, bringing us peace with you. We ask that you would cleanse our hearts as we prepare our lives for your son coming again. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that we can uh, gather together here and worship you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him into this world uh, to come and to live and ultimately to die so that we could be reconciled to you. And Lord, uh, that is the best, most perfect gift that you could ever give us. That while we in our hearts have been in rebellion against you, that you would love us so much that you would pave a way for us to be reconciled. God, in that we find as we have studied last week and in the, in the days and weeks to come, study through your word, the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, we come to the recognition of not only how undeserving of that gift we are, but just how precious and how important and special it is as we look to find our hope and our peace and our joy and our deepest love in you. And so, Lord, we've gathered here this morning to worship you. We've gathered here to be reminded that, Father, you walk with us every single day through every moment, through every great moment and through every trial and difficulty, and you are faithful. And so, Lord, we come and we open up our hearts to you today, and we pray that you would receive worship and glory and honor, not just in our singing, but as we read your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives. You know exactly the things that we're dealing with. You know exactly what we need to hear today. And so, God, we pray that you would have the freedom to speak, but our worship, Father, is not just in hearing, but also receiving and allowing you to transform our hearts from the inside out. And so, God, we yield ourselves to you and ask that you would do that today. Father, as well, as we uh, continue in our worship, we uh, approach our time of offering uh, and giving back, recognizing just how much you have given to us. And so, Father, as we give our offerings and our tithes this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would multiply them so that more people would know your son, Jesus Christ, in this community and throughout the world. It is to you and you alone that we give all of the praise and the glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would, let's continue in a moment of worship as we take our offering buckets and uh, from the center aisle, we'll pass them across and collect our morning offering. And then we will uh, continue by jumping into the word together in just a moment. We're just having a conversation about these lovely candles that are here. And last week, how I had to jump down and save the church building. So uh, we, we bought some new ones. We made it through the first service. I felt pretty good about that. So we're going to see. Uh, but if I, if I jump down to snuff those things out, don't be alarmed. I'm just saving your life. So uh, yeah, so uh, it's good to be here together, isn't it? To be getting into God's word, to spend some time worshiping together. 
Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we started our Christmas series, and it's entitled, Tis the Season, uh, a phrase that is often used during the Christmas season that comes with a whole lot of hope and excitement and joy. Uh, and one of the things that we talked about last week, and the reason that we chose this title for the series is because, you know, the Christmas season, it kind of always has this really glossy, perfect look to it. You know, everybody's taking their perfect uh, family Instagram pictures. I'm sure you'll visit our photo booth later and take like 20 pictures trying to find the right pose, you know, where the kids aren't like pulling each other's hair and doing weird things. But we, we like to have it look like everything is quite put together. But the reality is, is that while this season is one that commercially is put forward as something that is kind of perfect and all put together, in our lives, that's not always the case, especially at Christmas time. A lot of times there's a lot of brokenness that sits underneath the surface and it truly holds us back from experiencing all of the hope and all of the peace and all of the joy and all of the love that God desires for us. And so as we go through this season and through this series together, it's with that acknowledgement that sometimes life isn't put together quite as neatly as Christmas might portray, but there is hope and there is peace and there is joy and there is love that can be had. So as we continue in this Advent series together, last week we spent time talking about the hope that we can have and that is found in Jesus Christ. And as Adam mentioned this morning, our world, when they talk about hope, the idea of hope is like, I hope something will happen. It's a question mark. But for us as Christians, the hope that we are given through Jesus Christ is something that we can be assured of, that we can stake our claim on. Well, this week, we're going to be diving into talking about peace. Now, I want to begin, much like I did last week, and ask you to share with somebody around you an answer to this question. And by the way, I'm just going to let out the secret. This is simply the way to engage your mind before we dive in. But I want you to answer this question for me. How is it that you find your greatest peace? What is it in life, amongst all the turmoil and chaos and things that are going on, where do you find peace? What brings you peace? Share that with somebody next to you for just a minute. Go. I'm sure that there are a litany of things that maybe bring you peace. What, uh, what are maybe one or two of the things that you shared with the person next to you? What is it that brings you peace personally? Quiet. Okay, what else? Music. What else? What else brings you peace? Somebody in the first service said sleep, and my immediate answer was Amen. Right? Sleep, sleep, bring you peace. How, the Holy Spirit, I love it. Who, what else? Somebody else first service was like the hot tub. I'm like, yes, that sounds like a great thing. How, how about this? How many of you find peace in nature? Like going out, walking through a park or going through nature, like sometimes that can bring you peace. Sometimes we might find peace in specific hobbies or things that we like to do. 
We might find it in friendships or familial relationships or not, but that's another story. For me, I, I know that one of the times we actually asked this question of our staff this past week, and I was thinking through, like, where, where is it in my life that I have felt the most peace? And I can remember uh, the first, uh, I think it was our first anniversary that Rochelle and I went on a cruise together. It was the first cruise that I had ever done uh, to the Caribbean. And let me tell you something. I realized that that is where I would find my greatest peace, on a huge boat in the middle of the ocean where nobody could call me or find me. I, I'm telling you, it was phenomenal. People at work, I was a youth pastor. I, I wasn't being called. I wasn't being bothered. You know, it's funny, first service, because we've been on multiple cruises together. First service, I think I made the comment. I'm like, the kids were at home. And then I was like, wait a second, you're one. Uh, that math didn't add up, and it got really awkward. So, um, but, but, so the kids weren't around yet. But... Uh, for me, it was that place of going where there was nothing that could bother me or trouble me, and it seemed like all of those things would just float away. Well, I want you to think about this morning what peace is. Let's define it together. If you have your sermon notes, you can follow along with me. But what is peace? And I want us to get an understanding of how our world looks at peace. There are three definitions here that if you look it up in the dictionary uh, that I think are important. Number one, and they paint a picture for us. The first is this, peace letter A is freedom from disturbance. In other words, uh, anything that would get in the way of our routine, anything that would get in the way of the things that we want to do or accomplish, freedom from any type of disturbance is one definition of peace. Another one, uh, letter B in your notes, is a period of time without war. And so we often think of right now, today in the world that we live in, we definitely are not living in a time of peace according to this definition. All over the world today, it seems that there are wars everywhere. The war in Israel that has been going on where... People are suffering every single day. You think of the war that is happening in, in Ukraine uh, with Russia. You hear on the news things about Iran. You hear about the Houthis in Yemen. And all you hear is constantly that there are wars going on. And it seems that peace is quite elusive. Well, what is peace? It's freedom from disturbance, a period without war. Let us see. It can also be defined as mental calm or serenity. In other words, that we have like peace of mind. In other words, there aren't any troubles that are plaguing our mind or causing us to feel some sort of uh, a difficulty or trial. Here's what I want you to see, though, as you think about this definition of peace. The way that our world defines peace is culminated in this. It is an absence of trouble or problems. It is an absence of trouble or problems. And I want you to think about it. We subscribe oftentimes to this, uh, to this definition in many ways. Why is it in life that we lack peace? What are things that happen in your lives that seem to rob you of your peace? Maybe it's health problems without answers, or you've received a bad health diagnosis. Maybe you're walking through a season with aging parents, and you're not quite sure how to help them. You're not quite sure what the next step is. And so you're struggling through that, and it brings a lack of peace into your life. Maybe it's discontent in your marriage, or maybe it's your kids, or walking away from God, or making poor choices, and so there seems to be a lack of peace in your life in that way. Maybe there's broken relationships with family members, 
or you've experienced hurt or pain from a close friend. Maybe you're walking through a season of singleness in your life and longing for companionship, and it seems to be robbing you of your peace. It can be our pressures that we face at school, pressures that we face at work with looming deadlines. Maybe you're in a working environment that is toxic and unhealthy, and it brings a great sense of discontent. It can come from a loss of a job, pressures with constantly busy schedules, and those are just the personal things. Throw on top of that everything that we see happening in our world today with all of the pain and the difficulty from wars that are happening, the turmoil in our government, the things that we hear constantly on the news, and what we begin to realize is that we lack peace or we believe that we ultimately lack peace because of any number of trials, pressures, or disappointments that we may be facing, where it feels like circumstances aren't getting better, but maybe you're constantly getting worse, or maybe we're walking through a season of unknown. What I want you to see, and I think what we can all agree with, is that peace does not come naturally to us, amen? Peace is not something that comes naturally. What is it that comes naturally? Anxiety, worry, fear, all of those things. We don't even have to try when it comes to those. But peace is something that often feels incredibly elusive. How is it then, in the midst of a broken world, that we can find peace? You can fill this in in your notes. How can we have peace in the midst of a broken world where it seems like things are always going wrong? Again, this week, I want us to answer this question this morning by going back to the Christmas story. But I'll remind you, like I did last week, that we need to remember that the Christmas story doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph and a baby in a manger. It doesn't begin with angels pronouncing to a shepherds in a field or angels showing up to Mary and Joseph and telling them that they're going to have a baby. It doesn't even begin in the Old Testament with the prophets. It goes all the way back to the very beginning, as we talked about last week, with Abraham. We look at God appearing to Abraham and making a covenant with him. And I want to remind you of the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. He promised him that he would have a land, that he would give him an incredible land, not only for his family, but for future generations that would come from him. He promised him that he would have great wealth, wealth to the point that history would literally immortalize him and remember him. He promised him a child, even in his own age, and from this child would come this incredible nation. And he promised him that God himself, he said, I will be with you, I will stay with you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Literally, I will make sure that all that I have promised will take place and happen. And then he said, and because of all of this, the whole world Every single person for all time in every corner of the world will be blessed through you. And as we read last week, God follows through on that promise. When we read Genesis chapter 1, as we did at the close of our service last week, we need to be reminded that the genealogy of names that is there is not just there to give us something that's really hard to read and really boring to read. 
What it is for us is a listing of names that reminds us from Old Testament to New that God has been at work fulfilling the exact promise that he made to Abraham. He lists out the names from his son that was born to him, Isaac, all the way through to the very birth of Jesus, who is the one that is promised that will bless the entire world. And so God follows through on this promise. And this morning, I want us to pick up with the story where we left off with Abraham. Now, I'm going to warn you about something. I'm going to do something very dangerous this morning. And literally, this is the kind of thing you should not try at home. I am going to attempt to give you approximately 2,000 years of history in a handful of minutes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, man. I know how Rob preaches we're going to be here till Christmas morning. But here's the deal. I promise that we're going to get there. But here's the thing, if we're going to answer the question of how we have peace in a broken world, I think it's important and powerful for us to see the full context of the story that God unfolds through the whole of Scripture from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And so I want you to buckle in with me because we are definitely going to drive a little bit fast here at the beginning. From Abraham to Jesus, what I want you to catch as we look at this together is that this is a tale of dysfunction, of rebellion, and of chaos. The last word that I would possibly think of to describe or define what takes place in this 2,000 years of history as God is fulfilling uh, his promise to Abraham from Abraham to Jesus is the word peace. I would never think of the word peace because it was marked by dysfunction, rebellion, and chaos from the people to the decisions that they made and even how they reject God. And so let's start at the beginning. With Abraham. With Abraham, what we learn about Abraham as we uh, read about him is that there were a lot of great things about him. He had a ton of faith to follow God and do exactly what God had asked him to do. That he was going to go uh, leave his home to a land that God had not uh, told him where it was, and he faithfully went and he followed him and he trusted him, he believed him, and God fulfilled his promises. There are a lot of great things. Even after having his son Isaac at the age of 99, who was the fulfillment of this promise, you know the story in Genesis that God. God comes along and says, Abraham, I'm going to take that son from you. I would like you to sacrifice him to me. And it says that Abraham had even incredible faith in that moment to trust that somehow God would still provide and fulfill his promise. Now, this is actually really interesting because we also see about Abraham is that Abraham makes some really dumb decisions in scripture when we read, like this one in your notes that he trades his wife in order to save his own skin. Have you read this passage in Genesis chapter 20? In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is coming up uh, to this region where there is a king by the name of Abimelech, uh, the king of Gerar, and essentially he is afraid that because apparently Sarah was very beautiful, uh, he's like, the king is going to want to take you as his wife and he'll kill me in order to get to you. So I've got this really great idea, Sarah. We're going to tell him that you're my sister and then he'll take you and then I'll be saved. Now, guys, don't ever do that, Okay really foolish, really dumb. Like when you listen to this kind of stuff, you think to yourself, what was Abraham thinking? Of course, as you read the story, God eventually reveals to this king Abimelech that, uh, that, that Sarah is Abraham's wife, and he's like freaking out, and he's like, what are you doing? But Abraham, even himself, this person at times who seems like he had great faith, did, made some really dumb decisions. And this continues throughout the history of his people. I think it was hereditary. I want you to look at this, letter B, Isaac. 
Isaac, his son, who was born to him at the age of 99, was someone who, as he grew up, showed favoritism within his own family. Married to Rebekah, they had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And as you read the account of this, it says that Isaac loved Esau while Rebekah loved Jacob. And this is such an interesting passage that they would show such favoritism to their children. Even to the point, an unhealthy point that let her see, we see that Jacob himself became a lying thief because of a plan that was devised with his mom. Esau was supposed to, to receive the birthright from his father. And uh, as he was supposed to receive that birthright, because uh, Jacob was the favorite of Rebekah, they devised this plan because Abraham was, or not Abraham, I'm sorry, uh, because Isaac was old in age and because his eyesight was going poor, they decided to take, it says that Esau was a hairy person, so they put this like animal skin on the arm of, uh, uh, of Jacob so that he would feel like Esau, and then they made the, the special meal that Esau would often make his father in order to trick him and and then they tricked him into giving him the birthright. And so Jacob steals it. He's a lying thief. I mean, it can't get any worse than that, can it? Well, fast forward. We see letter D that Jacob shows a lot of this same favoritism, and it causes huge issues within his family. There is a whole sense of favoritism, jealousy, and abandonment that takes place in this story. Jacob's son Joseph was his favorite. He gave him a coat of many colors. He had 12 sons, and the other sons became increasingly jealous of Joseph. You know the story. To the point that they take Joseph, and they beat him up and throw him in a pit, and are thinking, let's just leave him for dead. We can't stand him. He's dad's favorite. Well, one of them gets the great idea that that probably wouldn't be good, and so what do they do? They decide that they will sell him into slavery. And Joseph's life becomes this like really horrible journey of being sold into slavery. He goes, he raises into a position of power, and then his boss's wife uh, uh, tries to seduce him, and when he says no and he runs, she screams rape. He ends up in jail. Like, man, what a horrible life. No peace in this guy's life. But then, after being forgotten in jail for years, God remembers him and again raises his, him up to this incredible position of power in Egypt. As the story goes, as Joseph is sitting in this position of power, a famine comes on the land, and here come his brothers looking for food which had been stored up in Egypt because of Joseph and how wise he was. And when Joseph sees them, rather than exacting revenge, this is like the one good moment in the story, what he ultimately does is that he looks at his brothers and he forgives them and he says, look, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. And God had a greater plan, and so he has them go and get his father and bring them all together right there in Egypt. And they begin to multiply. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we see as Joseph is dying, his family is together, this nation or this people that is coming from Abraham has been preserved, but they are beginning to grow. And when we look in the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that in Egypt, the Pharaoh is beginning to freak out years after Joseph has died, forgetting about who he is and why that family is there. But he looks and says, this people is multiplying and they are becoming so large that they might actually become a threat. And so what do they do? They throw these people that are the promised people of God into horrid slavery for hundreds of years. And as they are enslaved by the Pharaoh, they cry out to God. And scripture tells us that in the midst of this time, 
that God hears their cry and he raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. Moses comes and he goes to Pharaoh and all of these incredibly miraculous signs are done trying to convince Pharaoh that it's time to let God's people go. You know the story. Eventually it works. And there is this incredible tale of how Moses and all of the Israelites leave Egypt and yet God continues to do these incredible miracles delivering them that would blow our minds. Now here's the crazy thing. I get impressed when I'm sitting at a stoplight and I'm in a hurry to go somewhere and the light seems like it's not changing and I pause and go, Lord, could you please help me out? Please make that light change. And all of a sudden it turns green and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Like my faith has been restored, right? I'm a very simple man. Like small, simple answers to prayer really, really get me going in my relationship with the Lord. But could you imagine the things that the Israelites have seen as they're leaving Egypt? God has brought these incredible plagues. He's done miraculous things, plagues of gnats, plagues of hails, uh, hail, plagues of uh, locusts, all different sorts of things. The whole firstborn in Egypt was killed so that, that they could be delivered. When they're running from Pharaoh, they hit up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's trying to get them. And God opens the sea and they walk through on dry ground and then he closes it over and kills Pharaoh's army. And as they continue to travel, they're hungry and they don't have food. He provides food from the heavens in the form of manna. When they're thirsty, he provides water from a rock. When they come up against enemies, he drives them out before them. I mean, God has done so much more, and yet, letter E, the people of Israel continually show a lack of trust in God. At every single turn, there is this lack of trust, a lack of peace in their lives. It's, it's crazy to read that they would see the hand of God in such powerful ways and decide that they couldn't trust him. They get up to the very land, the land that was promised by Abraham, or by God to Abraham. They're at the doorstep of the land. God is going to deliver it into their hands. They send spies into the land. They take one look at it, and they go, the people there, they're a little bit too big. We should just go back to Egypt, and they begin to grumble. I mean, can you imagine, after everything they've already seen, now let's go back to Egypt. Here's what I want you to hear, though. From this, there's a punishment that begins to happen. As they begin to look at all of the things that surround them in the world that don't seem quite right, and there is no peace for them, because peace is circumstantial. If there's trouble, you can't have peace. Well, they lose their lack of trust in God. They're punished. They wander in the desert for years. God brings them back, and then he brings them into the land, and he begins wiping out their enemies in front of them. But he says to them, as you go into the land, there is one thing that I want you to do. And what I want you to do is to drive out every single inhabitant. And the reason that God told them to do this is because he knew the penchant of the heart of mankind. That in our hearts, that we are naturally prone to walk away from God. And he knew that if they were to intermarry with the Canaanites that lived in the land, that they would begin to worship their gods. And does Israel listen? No. Israel doesn't listen. They begin to intermarry with the people. They begin to worship their gods, ultimately to the point that at one point they come to a place where they decide that God isn't enough for them and they plead to have their own king. And what does God say in that moment? God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Letter F, 
they've gone from being a people to being a nation. But the nation of Israel also began to not just not trust in God, but actually reject God. And from that came punishment. The nation of Israel rejected God, and from that came punishment. And we begin to see this continual cycle and this continual history of them walking further and further away from God, experiencing more rebellion, more dysfunction, and ultimately more chaos in their lives. They get their king, number one, and that first king is Saul. And what we read about Saul is that he was a prideful king who was blind to his own sin. He was a prideful king that was blind to his own sin. Literally, he thought to himself that he could do better than God. And he never waited on God. He always stepped out in front of him. Then number two, you have David who comes next. And David is a person that we look at and we say, David was a man after God's own heart. There were so many great things about him. But as well, we read in the scriptures that David was also an adulterer and turned murderer. He goes and he sees this woman who is married to one of his mighty men who is in battle and he takes her to himself. He gets her pregnant and then he tries to cover it over by having him killed on the battlefield. I mean, it's an incredible story when you read it to think how far God's people are slipping from him. He gives birth to this son with Bathsheba, who is Solomon, number three, who becomes the next king of Israel. And the way that I would define Solomon is this. He's the king of Israel that literally tried it all. There was nothing, when we read scripture, when we look in the book of Ecclesiastes or all throughout the historical books of scripture about Solomon, is he had everything. He had all of the wealth, all of the possessions, all of the women. He had more wives and concubines than a person could possibly imagine. When, he, when you look in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says specifically, I had everything. I tried it all. There was nothing that my hands did not get. But here's what he also got. Every single wife that he married that came from outside of their faith, of following God, he also took their gods and began to worship them. Moving from that time period, you move into a a time period called the divided kingdom. Essentially what that means is that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided in two. Israel went and had a section in the north, and they also had a section in the south. In the north, you had Israel. In the south, you had Judah. And they were ruled by separate kings. And oftentimes what you learn is that the kings in the north were kings that were constantly walking away from God and leading the people away from God. In the southern kingdom, the kings were a little bit better. There There were more kings that would try to lead people back to God, but ultimately they were still on this slippery slope of walking away from God. And because of it, they were constantly experiencing turmoil and chaos in their life. This was a time period that was defined as a growing time of rebellion, idolatry, and injustice in the history of Israel. There was rebellion consistently against God. They were always worshiping other idols, and injustice was rampant within the nation. And ultimately, what happens? God punishes his people. And as we continue through that history, what we begin to understand is that God sent prophets during this time who came, and as they prophesied, They would tell the people, you need to turn from your sin, turn from worshiping these idols, turn back to a fidelity towards God, or he is going to bring punishment to you. Literally, he is going to drag you out of your land. And number five, we see that what happens is that Israel ultimately in the Old Testament is destroyed and exiled. Assyria comes in to the north and takes over and decimates uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Years later, the Babylonians would come, and they would do 
do the very same thing in the southern kingdom with Judah. And they would drag off their best people all the way to Babylon and force them to assimilate into their culture because the best way to destroy a nation wasn't just to kill the people, but to take the remnant and get them to assimilate into your way of life. And so this was the plan. Can you imagine what it must have been like for God's people? Now all of a sudden they've lost everything that they have. It looks as though the promise that was made to Abraham is gone. They have nothing. And yet they're still given the opportunity, number six, to return back to their land. But when they do, they will always be under the hand of other nations. The Persians, the Romans, constantly oppressing them never allowing them to get back to that place where they themselves had control. You see, when we look at this long line of history that ultimately leads to the time of Jesus, this 2,000 years, it is 2,000 years full of dysfunction and rebellion and chaos and a lack of peace for God's people. But in the midst of the exile and Israel being dragged out of their city, the prophets not only gave warning, but they gave them messages of hope. And at Christmas time, we read one of the most important passages of scripture from the prophet Isaiah, where he reminds them that even though they are going to be punished because of their rebellion against God, that God would still fulfill his promises to them, and that he would send a deliverer, or better yet, a savior who would save them. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, the prophet Isaiah kept hope alive for the people when he said these words. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of peace, peace, the cessation of all of their troubles, that they would once again have their enemies wiped away and be able to rule themselves without trouble. This is the promise that Isaiah said from God was coming to them, that a savior would come. And I want you to listen and think about how this savior is described for the people They held on to it for years. Letter A, he's defined as the wonderful counselor. In other words, he is the one who would give wisdom amongst all of their chaos. Have you ever noticed how when you face a stressful or a difficult situation that it can be hard to actually think clearly and know exactly what to do? Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in a peaceless situation, our minds will rush to quick solutions and lack a little bit of wisdom. And we tend to be reactive rather than wise in our decision-making. As Israel struggled to understand their own plight, as they suffered under the hand of the other nations, God promised through the prophet Isaiah that a Savior would come who would provide them with the wisdom that they needed. Wise counsel in the midst of their confusion, chaos, and suffering. Now, there is nothing better, and I'm sure that you would agree with me this morning, there is nothing better than having that person who can center you when life feels chaotic. Do you have a person like that in your life? A person that can give you that centering when things feel out of control? 
You know, last week I shared with you a little bit of my own story about how when I lost my job in California, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure and, and painful things that my family walked through. There was the fear of losing my job and how would I provide for my family. We had only bought a house about a year earlier, which was also during the market crash and it had lost a ton of value. We didn't know where we were going to go. We were fearful of what was next. There was all of the pain and turmoil of, of losing my job and not understanding why. But I can remember that the person I turned to immediately was the person for me that always centered me. It was my father. And I remember calling him on the phone immediately after finding out and saying, Dad, I need to get together with you for lunch. And I went and I shared with him what was going on. And then I went home and waited. And that evening, Rochelle and I sat down and I shared with her what had happened. And it was painful. And my world at that moment was filled with so much fear and so much chaos. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And then I got this email from my father. And I want to let you in just a little bit into why kind of an intimate email that my dad wrote to me that evening to help center me when things felt out of control. He said these words. He said, Rob, I hope things are going well with you and Rochelle tonight. Going through this together is going to bring you closer together. I want to encourage you to start a prayer journal if you don't already have one. I want you to write out every specific need and concern that you see coming up. And I want you to lay it out before the Lord and then wait for his answers one by one. God has promised wisdom for the unwavering, but not the doubting. Reject any temptation toward fretting, worry, and trying to figure out everything, both past and future. I would bury the past and refuse to visit it. Move on. Your future is in front of you, not behind you. At this time, you need to understand and know God's plans for you. And Rob, the key to discovering this will be completely open, be, will be being completely open to any assignment and any place. Thank you, Dad, for getting me to Toledo. Um, as long as God puts his finger on it. Rob, if I approach God with the attitude that some assignments are acceptable and some are not based on my personal preferences, it's very difficult to receive direction from God. God directs people that are totally submitted to him. And this is hard to do, to take our hands off completely and to trust God. But this is when God responds. God does his best and his most complete work in our lives during times of trouble and uncertainty. These are tremendous times of growth in faith and in our confidence in God. I have been through several, and I treasure every single one of them now looking back, though none of them were enjoyable at the time. I love you, and we'll talk more tomorrow. As I receive these words from my dad, my dad was the person in my life that was always pointing me back to the Lord. I always knew that he was that person, at least for me, that could center me in a moment where it felt like things were unsure and that I didn't have peace in my heart, my life. I knew that he would be the one that would point me back to the one who could give me peace. And what does God do here with Israel? He promises that he's going to send them a savior who would provide them with wise counsel amidst the chaos of the moment.
that while things seemed out of control, that the Savior that would come would provide them with the counsel that they needed. But as well, letter B, he also said that the Savior that would come would be a mighty God. In other words, he would fight for them. The Hebrew words that are here used for God is El Gabor. It's very similar to what we saw last week with God and with Abraham, uh, the name El Shaddai. They are almost synonymous The word El is always used as the name of God in Isaiah. It tells us that he is speaking of the divine, all-powerful creator God, of whom there is no one like him and no one who has power like him, that he is the strongest and greatest in person that is in control of all things. And what does he say? Isaiah says that God has told me that he is going to send a Savior who will not only provide you with wise counsel, but he is going to come and he is going to fight for you. What incredible news that is for a nation that's subdued by countless enemies and nations and has no peace at all. There will be a mighty warrior who will come and will lead them to decisive victory over their occupiers. But it doesn't stop there. Because not only will he be be this mighty God and great warrior, but let her see, he promises them an everlasting father. In other words, the one who will come will be their constant. When nothing else in this life seems like it's constant, This Savior will be. The description that's given here of this coming king is in stark contrast to our experience of kings in our own world. Every four years in America, we have elections where we go through this cycle and we sit around wondering who's going to be the next king. And it seems like nothing is ever constant. And to be honest, depending on who the president is, you may not want him to be constant, but that doesn't matter. You may not necessarily, while you don't want them to be constant, we live in a time where there's a lack of peace because we never know what's coming next. It was the same in Bible times. Kings constantly rose and kings constantly fell. There was absolutely no consistency. It was an incredible time of violence, and they also didn't have great health care benefits. You could easily be killed overnight by your friends or your family who wanted power, or you could come down with some weird sickness or disease that they didn't have medicine for, and it would be your demise, and the next person would take control, and the next person, and oftentimes it happened quickly. There was no consistency when it came to ruling powers. Then can you imagine how important this promise is from God, that the Savior that would come would be an everlasting Father, the one who would be constant, what it reminds me of is what God said to Abraham when he made the covenant with him and he said, I will always fight for you. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, I will always make sure that the promises that I have made to you come to fulfillment because I am the all-powerful God and nobody can stop me. I will always be sitting on my throne and I will make these things happen. The coming Savior would be their constant. He would be everlasting. Literally, he would be an eternally divine ruler who could not be overthrown. And because of this letter D, the capstone, he will be the Prince of Peace. And they would rule and they would reign with him forever. Can you imagine, through all of the years of dysfunction and rebellion and chaos and separation from God and punishment because of their sin, They longed for peace. They desperately looked to a day when all of their trouble would be gone. Can you relate to that this morning? A longing in your own heart. As you think about the things in your own life, even today, that you feel are robbing you of your peace, what I want you to catch here is that for for us, we need to understand this. 
is that no matter what is happening in our world today, no matter what trial or difficulty you are walking through, wishing that it would all go away, is that there is a truth, that there's a peace that you can have even in the midst of your difficulty. You see, at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was still waiting to receive that peace, but they were waiting for the wrong thing. Letter A, what Israel wanted was their troubles gone. They wanted Rome to be overthrown so that they would once again rule themselves as a mighty nation, subduing their enemies and wiping away all of their painful suffering. But you see, their definition of peace was wrong. For them, peace was a cessation of trouble or difficulty. They could not have peace unless the situation was removed. But there was something that they had deeply missed about God and his promises, something that they didn't quite understand. But we get our first glimpse of it when we listen carefully to the words that the angel spoke when he appeared to Joseph. Let her be in your notes, here's what they missed. Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 21. Listen carefully to this passage. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. What an incredible promise. This is what they had always been waiting to hear. A Savior is going to come, and the Savior has now come that is going to save us, that's going to save us from Rome, that's going to remove our enemies. Everything is going to be perfect. But they didn't quite understand the last part of this passage. Because what will he save his people from? Rome? Oppression? Pain and difficulty in the world? Here's what I want you to catch. We are always concerned about the surface issues in our life and we forget that the real issue lays below the surface and God is a God who deals with the root of the problem. Israel thought their biggest issue was wrong, that they needed to be saved from things and people and difficult situations. But what would he save his people from? From their sin. You see, sin is what caused all of the brokenness in the world. Sin is what caused the separation between them and a God who wanted to provide everything for them. It was that sin that brought a lack of peace into their lives and caused all sorts of chaos because of their rebellion. What God sent his son, his savior into the world was not to just wipe away the surface issue, but to deal with the heart issue so that his people would ultimately experience his peace. Think of the words in John chapter 16, verse 33, when Jesus is with his disciples before he ascends 
before he goes to his crucifixion and sends to heaven, he's sitting there and he's begun to tell them that he's going to have to leave them. And he tells them uh, time and again that he's going to have to die. And they don't understand this because it doesn't quite fit their description of the Messiah, the Savior that was promised. And it sends them into a place of chaos and concern and fear and worry and anxiety as they wrestle with hearing this from him. But what does he say to them? He says, look, I have told you these things so that in me you may have what? Peace. It's interesting. Even in the midst of chaos and difficulty and trouble in this world, he says what? You can have. In me, you can have peace. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Have hope. Because I have overcome the world. What we need to see and understand is that the peace that God offers is not dependent on the removal or the cessation of our trouble. That's how the world defines peace. The world says you can't have peace unless that thing that's happening to you right now, that thing that's struggling and robbing you of your peace, the world says you can't have peace until that's gone. But what God says is is that you can have perfect peace even in the midst of trial and difficulty and pain and suffering and you find that peace through me why because he came into the world to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that if you would place your faith and trust in him and your hope in him that you could know without a shadow of a doubt that you would spend eternity with him and that one day he would wipe away all pain And you will live with him and reign with him forever with all evil and all pain and all sickness and all hurting and all tears and all of it combined completely wiped away. But you can have peace because you know that that day is coming. And you can have peace because you know that you have a God that walks with you through it all. In the same way that he promised Abraham and said, Abraham, I will be with you always and I will make sure that my promise is fulfilled. He makes that same promise to you. Take a quick look with me, just quickly, right at the very end, or right at Isaiah 9-6 again. Israel interpreted Isaiah 9-6 one way, but I want you to think about how we interpret it. That God has sent to you a wonderful counselor. One will, who will give you wisdom and understanding the brokenness of the world and your own brokenness and point you to the way of salvation. He has sent you a mighty God who will fight for you, not just to remove the difficulty that you face, but to remove the one thing from your life that you have no control over, which is your sin. And he has, and he will fight for you to give you freedom from that sin the mighty God who controls all things. He is the everlasting father, the constant, the one who will never leave you, who ensures you that he will fulfill every promise that he has made to you. And because of this, he is your peace if you choose to allow him to be. And he is your peace because one day you will rule and reign with him forever. So how can you have peace in the midst of a broken world? Three things. Number one, the first thing you have to do is to find peace with God first. 
understand that the greatest thing that brings chaos and lack of peace in our lives is the sin that is there. And if you sit here today and you have never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to know that no matter how hard you try, and you know what I'm talking about, no matter how hard you try, it is impossible to find lasting peace in this world. You can have that through Jesus Christ, but it begins by making a confession that says, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that all of the pain and all of the difficulty that we experience in this world is because of our sin against you. God intended a perfect life for us, but we chose to rebel against him. But in his love and in his grace, he sent his son into the world as a baby to ultimately grow up and to die and to be put to death on a cross. Why? To pay the penalty that you deserved that I deserved, that we deserved because of our sin so that we could be reconciled to God. And when we choose to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is then that we find peace because we find eternal peace knowing that one day God will wipe it all away. You see, because God has promised that he will restore peace on earth. He will restore peace on earth. He has said in his word that one day his son will come again and he will wipe away all of the brokenness and that we will experience peace with him. And so thirdly, peace can be yours today because of the hope that you have in him and in him alone. Because he is a God who is all powerful, who is in control of all things, who will always be with you and always fulfills his promises. And if you trust in him, even though there will still be trouble in this world, You can find peace knowing that he walks with you and you will reign with him forever. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge to you that there are things in our lives. We listed a lot of them this morning that rob us of our peace. Painful situations that we are walking through or have walked through. Things that have caused us fear or uncertainty. And Father, at times, rather than turning our hearts to you, the one who is our constant, we are constantly looking for answers in a world that can never provide us what we're looking for. But I pray that you would return us this morning to a reminder of the depth of your love for us, that you love us so much that you sent a savior into the world, not just a savior that will wipe away the pain of the world and our enemies, but one who would come to treat the very issue of our sin that separates us from you, that keeps us from finding true and lasting peace. And I pray, God, that this morning, that as we recognize that, that you would bring us again to a place of surrender, that though the things we walk through in this life are difficult and they have uncertainty, that we can have perfect peace even as we walk through them because you walk through them with us. And for that, God, we worship you with all of our hearts.
child prays for peace on earth and she's calling out from a sea of hurt oh come oh come Emmanuel and can you hear the angels singing close our service this morning. Uh, Tom and uh, Kathy will be up here at the front part of our prayer team. And if you have any prayer needs, we'd invite you to come forward. They would love the opportunity to pray with you this morning. Uh, And as we close our service, I just want to close uh, praying over you. So would you join me in prayer? 
Father, uh, I again thank you for the time that we've had to dig into your word. And I thank you for uh, the incredible promise that we have in your word that in the midst of a broken world, that you are the one that provides us with hope and that you can provide us with perfect peace through your son, Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for every individual that is here this morning. As we identify the areas of our lives, God, and you know every single one of them where we have situations, whether there's things that are happening in this world or things that are happening in our personal lives that are robbing us of our peace, God, I pray that you would take us back to a place where we are placing our complete hope and our complete trust in you. Because when we do, that is the place that we find that peace to know that, God, you are in control of all things. And I pray, God, for every individual that's here this morning, that you would do that for them today and in this week to come. That whatever it is that has been taking away that sense of peace that they have, that, Father, you would restore it as they put their trust in you. And Father, I pray that you would do that not only so that there is a a peace that they can experience in their life, but even more importantly, God, so that as they go out into this world and people see them, that they would see the peace that they are living with and question, how is it that you can live this way? And that, Father, they would have the opportunity to hear about your son, Jesus Christ, and the hope and the peace that he can provide us. And so use us this week, God, as a testimony to others of the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, ultimately, that you would receive all glory and honor. We love you, Jesus. We yield our hearts and our lives to you this week as we go and we serve you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless the church. Thanks for worshiping with us today. We'll see you next Sunday.